Okay, what I want to do right now is I want to jump into the teaching. So if you guys want, why don't you open up to the book of John, John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses uh, 22 is where we're going to pick up. So we're right around there. So open up if you would. If you guys don't have Bibles, I think we have some ushers that may be handing them out. Um, just grab someone and they will be glad to drop a Bible in your hand. And if you don't have a Bible, it's our gift to you guys. So go ahead and keep it. Uh, I want to start with a quick little uh, thought experiment with you guys before we even jump in. All right, thought experiment is this. I want you to think about, if I were to ask you um, to describe yourself, like give me three adjectives or three uh, profile thoughts or ideas that would describe who you are and, and how you want to be known. So let's say, for example, you come back and you're like, oh, I, I want to be, this is who I am. I'm creative, I'm educated, I'm compassionate, those three things. And let's say, supposing these are three things that you would kind of use to describe yourself, someone uh, in the room were to come back to you and be like, you're not creative. You call those little stick figures creative? You're not creative. Or they're just, they push back, you're like, you call yourself educated? You have a city college education. That's hardly an education. At some point, you kind of hear this, and, and then let's say, for example, last one, they're like, and you are compassionate. That's cool. I'll give you that. At some point, you would hear this and be like, I feel really offended. Like, that's not, that's not cool to basically challenge who I am, and especially after me right now just telling you, this is who I am. This is how I identify. It's offensive. The reason why I throw that out is because I, I wonder how often we do that with Jesus, Jesus comes to us and says, here's who I am. Here's my profile. Here's how I identify. Here's how I want to be perceived and want to be seen. Here's what I've done in this world. Here's what I am doing. And here's what I'm up to in this world. And there is a modern propensity, especially in our modern world, to basically, if you guys don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Teddy, this guy is amazing. He doesn't even go to our church anymore. He just comes here, and he grabs Bibles and starts helping out. He doesn't live here anymore, by the way. Uh, we love Teddy, and he is always welcome to come back. He lives in San Francisco, but we still love him. Um, anyways, let's give Teddy a round of applause. This guy's amazing. Thank you. Um, but I wonder how oftentimes we do that with Jesus. We hear Jesus say something about himself, and then we push back. And we're like, I don't like that part about Jesus. I like this part about Jesus. I like the Jesus that feeds people. I don't like the part about Jesus that, you know, says judgmental-type things or things that sound like it has, like, a, a prick or a, or a barb in it. And I don't like that element of Jesus. And I wonder how oftentimes we craft a Jesus according to our, our liking. Our modern-day sensibilities. Again, it's really easy for all of us to be guilty of doing this. Certain elements of Jesus' characteristic traits we don't like. Certain other ones we adapt to and uh, we, we move towards. Or we adjust a Jesus that fits, uh, is a little bit more palatable for us. And my concern is that by doing that, is we end up crafting a, uh, you know, a, a self-made, a, a mixed-type Jesus that ultimately at the end is not the true Jesus. It's a false Jesus. It's a Jesus of your own making. The reason why that's bad, and not a good thing, I should say, is because that Jesus will ultimately be uh, unable to heal you or to help you. He's not infinite. He's not all-powerful. He doesn't have all the power over your life to say who he truly is, and we end up 
finding ourselves in this place where this is the culture that we live in that wants to constantly just craft something according to our liking. So what I want to invite you into this morning is as we read the passage that we're going to be looking at, I just want you to, to absorb it, to think about it, to meditate upon it, to consider who Jesus is. And we're going to try to do the best we can to unpack it, to, to help us understand, I think, what Jesus is really trying to con- consider, help, ask us to consider. Um, but before we do, I want to read, we're going to basically read from John chapter 5, verse 22, um, all the way down to 27, I believe, somewhere around there, that whole entire little chunk. But before we jump in, I want to just uh, do a little bit of... Um, uh, reiteration of what we've been doing over the past few weeks. I'll just kind of make a, a quick mention, honorable mention of chiastic structure. If you're unfamiliar with this, just go ahead and listen to the last few couple weeks that we've looked at. We've kind of uh, taken some time to expound this. Um, that this is a basic literary device that many New Testament, many Bible teachers actually believe that John, for example, is actually utilizing here. Think of it as like an arrow. It's an arrow that's a literary arrow kind of pointing inward. So you take the out verses on the outside. So next slide. Again, this is going to freak some of you out. A lot of content on here. So it, so this is basically verse 19 all the way down to verse 30. So the blue, blue, you get the idea. So hopefully don't get freaked out by that. Um, but the whole idea is like an arrow. It's pointing to something. So which means that the two main verses in and according to a chiastic structure is to basically focus on the, the, the main uh, point or the main uh, epic point of that whole idea, which in this particular context is verses 24 to 25. So we're going to read that, but it seems like the main point that John, this author, is trying to get your attention and my attention to to listen towards is that. That's kind of where everything's headed. So what I'm going to do today is we're going to basically look at verse uh, the verse 22 and the 26 or 27, uh, which is the yellow. So, and then the last little segment, which is the inner segment of this, which is kind of, I don't know if that's red or orange. I'm not even sure what color and I made this slide. So, um, anyways, um, you're welcome if I confused you. So, what I want to do right now, we're going to just jump right in. I'm going to read this according to the chiastic, like, paradigm. Hopefully that makes sense. So, which means we're going to first read verse, yeah, verse 22 and then 23 and then 26 and 27, and then we will kind of make our way on into the center of that arrow. Does that make sense? Did I lose all of you? No. Okay, good. Here we go. Here we go. John chapter 20, John, John chapter 5, verse 22 to 27. I'm going to read. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, now mind you, this is Jesus speaking. So whatever Jesus is writing or speaking here, he wants us to recognize this is who he is. Uh, I asked us a couple weeks ago to think about, like, who does Jesus think he is? And then the question is, next, do you see Jesus according to how Jesus sees he is? And, and, if, and if not, what evidence do you have to disprove what Jesus claims to be? Like, like where and how are you getting the authority to speak something that is going to be different or distinct from how Jesus defines or describes himself to be. So with that being said, let's, again, just jump back in. Uh, as Jesus speaks here, again, the larger context of this is Jesus heals a guy who's paralyzed at a particular pool called Bethesda. It's on the Sabbath. The religious leaders get freaked out as a result of this. They're so offended. They want to put Jesus to death. And then from verse 19 on to ver- really the end of the chapter is this very lengthy monologue that Jesus gives. And then we're kind of right in the middle of this monologue within this chiastic structure. So hopefully all that makes sense. So here we go. Verse uh, 22 says this, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. 
that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so also he's granted that the Son also have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. It's very dense, very powerful statement that Jesus makes about himself. Jump on down to verse 24 and 25, and then we'll wrap it up. Jesus finishes with these two words. And again, I want you to pay attention to uh, the beginning of verse 24 and the beginning of verse 25, because it's really, really important. Um, you're gonna, most of your Bible translations might say, uh, truly, truly, or some of your translations might say, verily, verily. Anybody have the very, verily, verily translation? Anybody? Nobody. Okay, well, a couple of you guys. Verily, verily. All right. Uh, it basically means truly, truly. So, um, how, how, with how much authority should we take the words of Jesus, even if Jesus never even said, hey, truly, truly, I tell you. Like, does Jesus need to say that twice, or is once sufficient? I, I think coming from the mouth of Jesus, once should, should, should be sufficient. But what happens if Jesus says it four times? Truly, 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 truly. Uh, at some point, you have to step back and be like, whoa, whatever it is that he's about to say, is of such high level, high prioritization, that we have to deal with it, receive it. Otherwise, it's the burden of evidence or proof to disprove it is on us, which means we have to formulate an authority structure, which means we have to reason or figure out some sort of uh, good, healthy uh, reason to disprove what Jesus had to say was just lunacy. Uh, so the burden of proof would be on it. So Jesus, again, verse 24 says, Verily, verily, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And this is the word of the Lord. So I want to jump in, and I really want to just look at two things here this morning that will hopefully just kind of occupy our attention. And again, this whole entire segment of Jesus' monologue is extremely deep and rich and full. And so that's one of the reasons why it's basically taken us three weeks to go through this, because we did not want to rush through it. We want to take our time just kind of considering, thinking about uh, what Jesus had to say, because um, again, most of our Bibles, if you have like the red letter version, um, it's, it's this whole segment right here is all red, which means it's all lit up, which means it's all very, very important. So we don't want to miss it for what it's worth. So let's jump in and begin to take, uh, make some sense of this. So Jesus makes reference in verse 22 again. Go back and take a look at this. He says, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. So he makes reference to himself as being the Son. And he says that God, the Father, has given the Son. Jesus, no doubt, is identifying as the Son. He's self-identifying as that. And he's saying, I have been given by God all judgment. So whatever that means, it all belongs to Jesus. So again, we'll re- like withhold your judgment of what that could be or assessment of what that could be in just a moment. And then the last little passage right there, take a look at verse 27. Again, this is kind of like the whole outer segments of this uh, chiastic structure. Verse 27, um, it says, The Father has given him all authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus gets even way more specific here, and he uses a phrase that if you were a Jew living for a century, you would have completely known exactly what Jesus was, was 
was referring to. The phrase son of man is a radically loaded phrase. In fact, I would go so far as to say if your Bible actually were hyperlinks, um, that phrase son of man would be blue underlined hyperlink. That you can click it and it would take you back to Daniel chapter 7, which is where I want to go right now. As, um, as I was thinking about the importance of this phrase that Jesus says son of man is so significant. So significant that by Jesus identifying himself as being this figure that he describes as the Son of Man is so important that it literally ends up being the very thing that gets him murdered. So that might come as a shock to some of us, but the fact of the matter, this is exactly, this is, this is a pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry that he's making some self-assertions or claims about himself that are so significant that I, I think it's important for us just to pause and ask the bigger question, who is the Son of Man figure that Jesus says, oh, that's me. <laughs> that's me. Okay, so with that being said, I want to actually jump right into a video because in five minutes, the Bible Project can do a far better job unpacking this, plus it's cool and fun to watch. So um, I want you to just go ahead and watch this. But, and again, if you've been around here for any length of time, you've probably seen this once or twice throughout your duration of time here, but it's so good. I've watched this at least 15 times, and I'm still learning something new from it. So the Son of Man video, here we go. Check it out. If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ, that is, the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the empire of Babylon and work for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of a dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What in the world is this about? Well, he's told that these beasts symbolize violent, prideful kings and their empires. Oh, like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah, and these creatures might seem random to you, but these images are developing an important biblical theme. How humans are these remarkable creatures capable of doing great good and horrible evil. How we can behave like animals. Right. Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together, all from the dust. But then the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf, like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms, which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster. And so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human. 
But instead, in story after story, we find people acting like beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain, who's jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beastly urge called sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge devour him, and he becomes a beast. And then after this, Cain's children spread their animal-like violence, and it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride, the city of Babylon. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward, this is where Daniel is enslaved, having this bizarro dream. Exactly. Now, watch what happens next in Daniel's dream. He sees into God's throne room where a court is set up, and God condemns the beast to destruction. That's great. And then Daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne. Oh, right, the throne that humanity left behind. Right. There hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside God until now. Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human. And he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more. All humanity worships and serves this Son of Man alongside God. Oh, worship? So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God-human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the Son of Man, for himself. He was claiming to be that truly human one on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives. And he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his life. Wait, rule the beast by dying? Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, From this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device. But Jesus viewed it as his throne. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst. And then he overcame it with his divine life and love. Jesus' execution was his exaltation. So Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast. And as a result, he can partner with God to rule the world. And so now, Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence, one that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. And then by discovering that Jesus' life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners, but Jesus-style, in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love. So that's hopefully helpful to consider, think about this idea of the Son of Man figure. And I think a couple thoughts that come to mind that are part of this, if I could put it this way, like a divine paradox. In other words, two things that would seem to be in opposition or contradictory, but in reality it's not a contradiction. They, they're just two radically, vastly different ideas. What we see is uh, this new Adam on the one hand, like Jesus is the fulfillment of he is what Adam ultimately should have always been, but Adam consistently failed. And then every other human being that came after Adam was called or summoned by God to live in a way that was in, in alignment with who God was, to walk in obedience with God. Yet every other human being failed. They were 
fatally flawed. Um, again, you, by the time you get to David, David's a pretty good subject. Like you think there's a lot of hopefulness in David, but even David is fatally flawed. David does a lot of atrocious things that uh, he's embarrassed as a result of that are basically disruptors to the work that God is doing. But Jesus comes on and he basically establishes basically like an Adam 2.0 or becoming a new humanity, a new Adam. This is exactly what Jesus is basically describing himself as. Uh, New Testament picks up language like this, that he is the prototype, prototype, the firstborn of a whole new host of creation. Uh, You know, think about a prototype. If you're going to do something in terms of a mass production line, you need something, first of all, it's going to basically be an emblem or a depiction of the rest of the things that are going to be coming. Jesus is that prototypical image or a person or life that is going to now then be replicated or to use another language in the book of um, Hebrews. He's the pioneer. You know, what's a pioneer? Someone that's kind of gone before. Uh, he's a trailblazer. Someone that has gone down a path that no one else has gone down. Maybe others have tried it, but they've been consumed. They've failed. They've not succeeded. Jesus is the true pioneer that's gone down the path of the humanness of doing humanity right without being uh, overcome by the beast. Was Jesus tempted? Absolutely. Was Jesus finding himself in a place surrounded by things that could have, like, distorted that? Yes. We're told that he was tempted and tried on every side, yet he was without sin. So we see Jesus consistently overcoming the temptations. Why and how? Because of his faithfulness to God. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus refers to himself as a son of man figure, is a way of correlating himself by connecting himself to this larger storyline of the people of Israel in this particular figure. And then second element to this is he's the exalted son. So he is the one that fully obeyed and loved God, loved others, and ultimately did good no matter what the expense was to himself and the benefit to others. You and I, we don't typically operate that way. We operate in such a way where it's like, it's going to, you're going to pick up the tab and I'm going to be benefited. That's the way we as human beings operate. We can call it just straight up, you know, egocentrism or selfishness, but that's how you and I operate. And there's various moments that we can catch glimpses of beauty in the midst of that. Say, for example, like a mother, my, I told you guys this before, my, my daughter just recently had a, had a baby and just to watch her like have to live the self-giving life of where her life is being like chewed away and removed. She's losing sleep. She's doing all of these things. But at the same time, all of that is having a direct benefit on my, my grandson. And that's awesome. It's beautiful. We look at that just like that's self-sacrificial love. It's beautiful. And this is the type of life that Jesus always consistently lived, all the way to the point of his own death, death on the cross. Uh, they made reference to this passage uh, where Jesus is before the high priest in Matthew chapter 26. In these high priests um, basically interrogate Jesus and they ask him, who, who are you? Tell us exactly, explicitly. Uh, In fact, he says this, I charge you under oath of the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the King, the Son of God. And then Jesus goes on to say, he doesn't, uh, he says this. He says, you have said it yourself. Jesus then answered, but I say to you all, from now on, you will see the Son of Man. Jesus Jesus doesn't say I'm the Son of God. He doesn't say um, I'm the Christ, though obviously that's implied. He knows that to be the case as well. But Jesus chooses the language of Son of Man to say, this is who I am. I am the Son of Man figure in Daniel chapter 7 that's ascending the clouds to the right hand of God. 
all authority, all power, all judgment has been given to me. And you can ask the question, why? How is that? Well, the simple answer would be because God gave it to them. But if you look beneath that, you realize Jesus alone always did everything God asked him to do. He never disobeyed, which leads me to just a next kind of sub-thought with regard to this. And it's the idea, idea that I would just describe as the criteria for judgment. Where do we get the criteria for judgment? In other words, to make laws, to make rules. So, for example, in America, um, Theodore Roosevelt, our former president from a long time ago, said this, Ours is a government of liberty, not a by, through, and under the law. No man is above it. No man is below it. So as Americans, the ultimate rule over the land is laws or our laws. And laws are obviously framed by I, I, I've flunked that class, so uh, you, you guys know how the whole laws are work. I don't. Um, but you, someone makes laws, and then they're, like, codified, and they become basically the law of the land, and then if you break them, you get busted. So that's how America works. But let's, let's just take, for example, again, another little thought experiment. Let's say, for example, you, you got appointed to be the one to create laws for all the cosmos. That, that job is, is yours now. You get to be the one to make the laws for society, for people to live. What would be the laws that you would make? What would you craft? What laws would you put into motion? Um, How fair would you be? How could you be certain that your laws are actually based upon fairness? Are they skewed? Do you have a bias? Are there things that you kind of like want, but it might be for your benefit, but uh, not be a benefit for other people? Like, let's say, for example, that was your job to kind of craft those laws. But hypothetically, let's just say, for example, um, could you keep all of them? Like, honestly, could you actually keep the very laws that you yourself would craft? Now, just pause and think about that. We already know the answer to that because we have these things called New Year's resolutions that rarely any of us ever keep. And again, those are just resolutions, not laws. And, and a law distinct from a resolution, a resolution would be like, ah, if I fail, if I blow it, if I mess up, so what? I'll do it again next year. Laws are, they, they have consequence to them. So let's just say, for example, you are the one that frames and creates laws for all human beings to abide by. And what happens, though, if you fail those laws? What happens if you violate the very laws that you yourself had made? Imagine if God crafted the universe saying, hey, listen, I'll tell you what, whatever your name is, you know, you fill in the blank, your name. God comes to you and says, hey, I'll tell you, I'm going to make a deal with you. The entire universe... I'm going to let you make the laws, and I'm going to judge the entire universe based upon the rules and the laws that you yourself craft. Like, how well do you think you and I would fare? I mean, we're going to get to some point of our life where we're going to realize that there's a point of weakness, that we failed, even our own standards, our own laws. And here's what happens. When those consequences oftentimes begin to arise and cause the consequences upon us, you know, we oftentimes do, we're wired in such a way where we cry for mercy for ourselves, and if somebody else breaks our laws, we want judgment. That's how we were wired. We're, we're, we work this way. Where it's like we want mercy for ourselves, but judgment for someone else. And so the point is that you and I as human beings, we are fatally flawed when it comes to forming just laws for ourselves. You want another example of this? Lord of the Flies, right? The, the, the book that came out in the 50s. And the storyline is like a bunch of young boys kind of find themselves on this you know, deserted island. And they're basically have to figure out how to survive. How do we make life um, happen and function uh, in fairness on this island, ultimately with the hope of getting off this island. So someone's got to constantly keep a fire burning so that smoke is going out, 
Um, someone's got to protect against, you know, the wild beasts that are out there. And someone's got to make sure that we got food. So there's laws. But what happens if you get some of these guys that are on an island, which ends up inevitably taking place? Some of them are lazy. They don't want to gather firewood. They don't want to help out. They don't want to pull their share. In other words, their lack of helping will potentially spell the death of that community. And so the, the whole thing is basically a, an experiment of disastrous proportions. So one of the things that we've learned over the years, is, and we've, we keep going back to these as hopeful possibilities to give us life. But what we know now, both groupthink and individuality are disastrous for human flourishing. We know this. Groupthink, for example, tribalism, partisan politics. We know this does not work. It does not work. In fact, if anything, you can look at our culture today. That's what's destroying our culture more than anything is partisan politics. You take your side. I take my side. I got my tribe over here. I got your, my tribe over there. I hate this tribe over there. Yes, I hate this tribe. And we are literally fragmenting and atomizing, becoming individualistic or becoming people that are associated with certain tribes and then creating enemies for those that are not part of our tribe. And it's destructive and is not functioning and flourishing. Why? Because at the end of the day, when it comes to forming rules and laws to live by and then executing judgment for those, we've proven over and over and over again, we just simply don't do a good job at that. So then the question comes, who is? Glad you asked. This is the claim of Jesus. He himself comes out and he says very clearly, just again, listen to it again. He says, the father has given all judgment to the son. Verse 27, so the father has given the son, Jesus, all authority to execute judgment. So just listen again to the claim of Jesus. He's basically saying very clearly, unambiguously, I have all authority and all judgment. So the question is, does Jesus make just rules? Is Jesus just? Does Jesus care about people? Is he compassionate? Is he righteous? Does he, does he kind of like tilt the scales in his favor? And the answer over and over and over again, what we see throughout Scripture, is he always does what is right. Why? Because he himself claims, I always do what the Father wants me to do. So everything that Jesus does is always just. So therefore, the big question is, is who alone should be given the right to execute just or justice or just judgment over all humanity? I mean, the answer should be pretty obvious. Not, not me. You don't want me being the guy who's going to execute just judgment because I, those two words are contradictory in my world. Like, I, I cannot give you just judgment. I can give you judgment that would be tilted in my favor and would likely end up marginalizing a whole lot of people, but I can't give you just judgment because I have biases, and I'll try to align myself with other people that have my types of biases. We call that confirmation bias. But at the end of the day, the only one that is found worthy is Jesus. And this is what we see very clearly. Jesus is making this claim of saying. So I want to move on to the very next thing, because at the end of the day, Jesus, this claim of Jesus, is so extraordinary there's really only one of three possibilities that it can be. Number one, it's either a delusion. Jesus is just kind of thinking of himself with grandiose visions of himself. Like, I'm, a, I'm the son of God. I'm amazing. I'm powerful. I've got God vibes. I can do anything that I want. I can accomplish anything I want. I'm powerful. I'm almighty. And that's just a delusion. And we know that that exists. That's a possibility. We have people in our world today that live under delusions, delusional thoughts. They, they exist in our culture. But just because they have delusional thoughts, nobody puts 
their stock of investment or life in their hands. We just, we look at it for what it is. It's a delusion. There's nothing to back the claim. The second thing is that this is either a deception. Jesus knows he's, he's false. Jesus knows he's nothing more than just a shallow human being trying to make himself greater than what he really is. And so therefore he has this sort of deception out there. He's just making claims knowing that it's wrong, but nonetheless, it's a way to bolster his ministry to become amazing. Or it's the reality. I mean, I, I really don't know how to distinguish what's going on here beyond one of these three possibilities. And so, for example, I want to finish with this and wrap this up. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 12. There's this passage. I think it's just worthy of noting because John, the apostle, who is actually writing this book that we're reading here right now, um, he has this vision, which if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, in, in this he has this series of uh, visions that he has. And one of the visions, the, the main central part of this vision is Jesus. Jesus doing what Jesus has claimed that he would do, that he is truly the only one in all the cosmos, all the universe that truly is worthy, that he alone is the one that has all authority or authorship. Think of authority as being uh, authorship. He has the right. He alone has the right to say what he wants. He can script. He can cast the script, create the script. He has the authority over them. And because of that, he also therefore has the right to determine or distinguish, or we would use the word judgment, uh, to determine what is right and what is wrong. Because he's the only one untainted by the beast. He's the only one that has not been corrupted or marred or given in to the temptations of the beast. And all of us, I'm sure, if I were to like ask for a show of hands, how many of us obviously have been tainted by the beast just this morning? All of us. We've we've all fall short constantly, regularly. But Jesus is the only one that has never been overcome by the beast. Therefore, we see this repeated line throughout the book of Revelation that there's no one found worthy on the entire planet other than the lamb, the language that gets used here is the lamb that was slain. It's a reference to Jesus. Jesus takes upon himself the consequences of sin and death and destruction. And he himself takes into his body that death, but overcomes. Therefore, he alone is truly worthy to be the one that does all this. So let me, let me read this passage. This is one of the very last passages of the book. He, John describes, he said, I saw a great white throne and one sitting on it, obviously a reference to Jesus. The earth and the sky, they fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to that which, had, which, that which they had done, as recorded in those books. And the reference seems to be pretty clearly here, that, that Jesus, the one who truly is on the throne, will one day bring all human beings that bear his image into this throne room, this courtroom, if you would, and he will then basically begin to look at how have we lived our life in comparison to what he invited us to live according to. Again, you and I don't set the rules. Again, thank God for that. But there is someone that does. Jesus does. And one of the continual storylines of the Bible is that this God is not just some sort of far-off distant entity telling us stuff to live according to. He comes into this world and takes upon himself. He subjects himself to his own laws and comes out the other end unscathed, undefiled, and ultimately being, becoming the means by which we could truly know life. And lastly, I'm done here, uh, which me, leads me to the second to 
last thing that we look at, which is, number one, we looked at Jesus as being the Son of Man. Secondly, we'll take a look at the Savior of the world. So again, we go back to those verse 24, 25. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, just I'll read the emboldened little section here. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And then skip on down to verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And all those who hear it will live. And again, this seems to be the center part of what John is trying to point to. Is that, look, at the end of the day, our hope for life alone on this planet can be found in no, none other than Jesus that he alone is not only the author, but he is the one who is worthy of making declarations as to whether or not we aligned our life with him. Now, again, those who acknowledge the fact, we've all fallen short, we've all broken God's law, we have all failed to some degree, one point or the next, but this is the beauty over and over and over again of the gospel. God knows that we would fail, but God already made solution baked into his own purposes of salvation, to take upon himself our failure. In other words, those areas that we just suck life out of God, God says, I will give myself for you so that you can truly live. And the people that do this are those that acknowledge the fact, that recognize, I'm broken. I've, I've failed. And I've not only been broken, and not only have failed, but I've contributed to the brokenness and failing of other people. Like, I have actually tempted people into things that then made them defiled. Like, we're all part of the system. And the good news is that God says, I've come to do something about it all and to craft an entirely whole new way of being human around the person of Jesus. So let me put it to you how Paul the Apostle put it, and I'm done. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 is a lengthy passage where Paul is dealing with a bunch of very, very broken people in this city called Corinth. And in this, Paul is basically writing to remind them, like, remember what God has done on your behalf for you, that once you came from all forms of brokenness and destruction and ruin and distortions, and, and God has made you brand New. So listen to what Paul says. First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through eleven. He says, Don't you realize that those who make a practice of doing wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Those who indulge in sexual sin, who worship idols, commit adultery, practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or are drunks, or are abusive, or who cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the beautiful part. But such were some of you. Some of you, this is how you identified. This is how you saw yourself. This is the practice that was your normal. But God rescued you. He goes on to give a series of, of uh, new ways to describe you. He says, in verse 11, but some of you were once that, but you were clean, cleansed, and you are now made holy, and you are now made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's way of saying what God has come into this world to do is to craft an entirely new way of being human around the person of Jesus. And by doing this, he's guaranteed a future and a hope. And I can't think of anything more significant that you and I need in our world today than a future and a hope, because I don't have a whole lot of hope for our future and the way things are going right now. I just like you get sucked into the vortex of social media and discover things that just constantly disrupt my soul and make me angry and frustrated and full of despair and anxiety, just like you. I don't have a whole lot of hope for this. But I do have incredible and enormous amounts of hope 
in what Jesus has come to do. And he invites us, just like John says, and those who believe in him, not just have a mental assertion, like, ah, yeah, cool, I, I believe it. The whole idea is orienting the sum total of your life around Jesus, not just as a life coach, not just as an influencer, not in some form of a weird fandom, but around Jesus as king. And what that means is we look at Jesus and say, Jesus, everything you say, everything that you've done for me, I orient my life around you. You alone, Jesus, are the king. You alone are the one that invites me to life. You alone are the one that I long to be affirmed by. I, I'm, not, I'm not autonomous. I'm not self-creating my own laws. I am not trying to orient myself around group thing and the, 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 the unanimous group of people in culture at large because at some point what all of these lead to is just new forms of brokenness and letdown. The invitation of Jesus is to orient our lives entirely around him as king. It's a big claim. I get it. And I'm done with the words of C.S. Lewis, again, where he describes, and we've been saying this the past couple of weeks, he made this distinction that Jesus is either one of three things. He's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. It has to be one of those three things. And it is upon us, in thinking through this, of asking, how, how do I think of Jesus? How do I perceive of him? Again, Jesus comes and says, here's who I am. And if we're going to push back and say, I don't agree with that, Jesus, on what basis do you disagree with Jesus? What authority, and where are you getting that authority? And I'm not saying this in a combative way. I'm just saying this in an honest, like, what, like where are you getting the authority to push back on the claims that Jesus says about himself? The, the better way is to just look at who Jesus is and receive what he says about himself and fall at his feet. And say, yes, Lord, you alone have the words of life. Where else can I go? Where else can I turn? Because I've tried this route. I've tried that path. I've tried this group. I've tried this approach. And every single one of them, time and time again, promises much, but always fails to deliver in the end. So I want to invite you all to stand. I want to pray over us as we wrap up. And I don't know where you're at or what types of circumstances you have going on in your life. Uh, we want to provide some opportunity for you to be prayed for if you have need at all of anything going on in your life to pray for you. But I want to just pray for us right now, and then James will wrap us up with some final thoughts. So, Jesus, right now we come to you. We bring our hopes, our dreams, our thoughts, our brokenness, our, our guilt our shame and our regrets. We bring all of these things. And we even bring our, our highest hopes and anticipations for ourselves and the dreams that we have of ourselves and the expectations that we have upon ourselves. All of these things that we either feel like we're doing really good on or things that we feel like we're just constantly in a cycle of failure. And we bring them to you, Jesus. We lay them at your feet and we realize that you and you alone come to us full of love, full of compassion, full of forgiveness, and full of welcome. And that's the type of God that we can fully trust in. That's the type of God that we can fully say, I, I give 
the sum total of my life over to because that's the God that you are. Father, all other distortions, all other false notions that we have of who you are, we pray that those would fall by the wayside as where they deserve. But in its place, God, just breathe fresh life and newness over us, reminding us again truly who you are. And God, as an act of love and devotion, may we receive the revelation of who you claim to be as an act of life transformation on our behalf. And that's just for ourselves. But God, as we go out of here, that we would participate in your works of new creation by showing kindness and goodness and love to our neighbor and to our enemy and to doing works of goodness all around us. God, you have a future and a hope for this world. And we, we thank you, Lord, that even though everything in our culture right now tells us the rich will inherit the earth, the pornographers will inherit the earth, the evildoers will inherit the earth, the violent will inherit the earth, the elite will inherit the earth. We, we thank you, Lord, that your word tells us, no, the meek will inherit the earth. Worthy is the lamb who is slain, for he alone will be the king over all the earth. So, God, we thank you that we have a hope and a future because of what Jesus did for us. So right now, empower us, Lord, as we scatter into this world, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.